0: Hey, welcome back to another episode of Creedle. This uh, episode today is a bit different from the usual fare. Hopefully, you enjoy. It's a crossover with my friend Nathan Crankfield, and we'll tell you more about that when it kicks off. But really fascinating discussion. Uh, this is released on Monday, July eighteenth, and if you want to hear the rest, go to Nathan's podcast, Seeking Excellence, on Thursday, July twenty-first, and you can hear part two there. Anyway, enjoy the show. All right, welcome back to another episode and we're doing a crossover event.
1: A little mix up. Nathan, how are you? What's going on, man? Good. Doing well. And uh, yeah, very excited to do this. We've been talking about it for a long time. Way too long. Yeah, I think the best episodes are always the ones you've uh, procrastinated on for a while. I think so, yeah. So it's going to be fun.
0: They just ruminate in your mind. <laughs> exactly. Your mind, I, that, that's probably the wrong word.
1: And you have a lot of great, we've had a lot of great like side conversations. Yes. That I think, you know. All and text conversations in. for yeah. sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So uh, you are Nathan Crankfield. You have a podcast as well. Tell me about your podcast.
1: I do. Yeah. So Seeking Excellence, I started it, man, coming up on two years ago now, which is kind of crazy in August. It'll be two years. And uh, yeah, all focused on what I consider the seven pillars of excellence, which are all the main areas I think every human being is responsible for in their life and try to approach it from the aspect of faith and reason.
0: Talk me through the seven pillars. What are those? So mental,
1: emotional, physical, and spiritual were kind of the first four things in my life that really opened up to me as um, really through Matthew Kelly and like Four Signs of a Dynamic Catholic. He talks about
0: some of these things. And are then, those the four signs?
1: Those are uh, four of the seven pillars. And then you have- No, but are those
0: Matthew Kelly's four oh, signs? Oh, no.
1: So his four signs are all spiritual and okay. kind of his- um ruling guide of what a dynamic Catholic looks like. So I'll share that next. Okay. The other three pillars are professional, financial, and social. Okay. Um. So I talk about, yeah, there's subcategories that fall into each one of those, you know, under- Is this emotions. your
0: framework that you came up with as- Yeah, kind okay. of
1: added to it throughout the years. Cool. Um, as I was really seeking to answer the question for myself, what's the best way to live? Um. And then, yeah, so the four signs of a dynamic Catholic are prayer, study, generosity, and evangelization. Okay. And so what I really appreciated about that book, I was in college, and and one thing I was struggling with in general, but especially within the church, was nobody really tells you how to be good at being Catholic. There's like no, you know, if you're a basketball player, if you're out working sales, you know what I mean? Like there's kind of benchmarks that you can be like, am I succeeding? Yeah. Um, but in Catholicism. And there are really
0: clear role models who you can look exactly. to and say, like in my organization, that salesman is our best salesman. And exactly. I want to I match his metrics or on a basketball team or in a league. Yeah. You look at the MVP or people in that stratosphere and you think, that's who I want to be like. Exactly. It's a lot harder in the, the Catholic team's record. Yeah. yeah.
1: And we do have that to a certain extent, right? Like certain Catholics and we have Saints and things Saints. Like that, yeah, but, for sure. And so what he did was try to evaluate, you know, Not really as much in the past, but really current people who are the most engaged parishioners. Okay. And they did some studies and kind of figured out, like, what are the things that they all have in common? And so he kind of came out with this list of they pray every day, they study their faith on a regular basis, and that could be through a number of different things, whether it's podcasts or books or audio books, you know. Um, And then they are generous with their time and their money. They give to the church and they evangelize. And that also looks number of different ways right the evangelization pieces um something that could be they just give that book to somebody else after they finish it or they're actually you know speaking um in depth or catechizing or teaching religious ed or whatever it might be and so that was really powerful for me and i was like well we need that for for everything yeah you know to be able to really gauge like am i being a good spouse am i being a good coworker? am i being uh, you know financially a good steward of my money and stuff like that like what are the guidelines for these things so i really started to seek them out and that was kind of how we came to form the the seven pillars they're also the seven areas of life that i see really draw people away from their relationship with god which is why i think they're so important to talk about as well
0: now when you say professional social financial does social include family life
1: uh, so I consider family life more under emotional. I do, I do like relationship oh, stuff, kind of the under the emotional one because I think of like emotional intelligence. Social is uh, for me cultural issues, political issues, things like that. So yeah. more society you think of, on a larger scale where I think like emotional. I think of like EQ and stuff like that. I put under. Okay your Personal relationships
0: under the what emotion. about like, but they could really, I mean, yeah, a lot I mean, of
1: things you know apply to all of them.
0: What or, about just uh, like the vocation of being a father? Like, like you have professionals, professional yeah. is your vocation in the workplace, yeah. But what about your vocation in the home? Would that would you consider that under emotional as well? Yeah, okay, I think so. Got yeah, it. so
1: yeah, those any type of like personal relationship I put under got it emotional, but they're, they're like I said, you know, fatherhood's gonna your professional life's gonna affect your fatherhood, your right. financial stewardship's gonna affect your fatherhood, your mental health will affect it, Yeah. Um, your fitness will affect it. So yeah, some of those, uh, you know, greater categories kind of fall under one, but really also like overlap. Makes sense. And there's so many different ones too.
0: So I have listened to your podcast, I'm familiar with it, but give my, give my listeners, I mean, this is gonna be, I think on, Well, so we're gonna do a part one and two. And I think, I think this part that we're recording now is gonna be on my feed and part two is gonna be on your yeah. feed could subject to change absolutely but if this is if this is on my feed and people haven't heard i guess it probably makes sense to just put this on my feed Uh, (laughs) since i'm asking you this question just commit what what type of what types of conversations do you have yeah on seeking excellence to to delve into these seven pillars
1: well i do a fair bit so i do basically 50 50 usually on mondays i post a solo episode and then on thursdays i do one with a guest what do you
0: prefer of those two like just from a from a creation standpoint man that's a great
1: question it, I guess I could say it depends on the guests, That's you know, right. the, the, uh, the solo experience is very consistent. Yeah. <laughs> so I do appreciate yeah. that. I like that. <laughs> you know? Um, and so that, that is really fun to me because you get to just like really, you know, prepare and just share your thoughts and go in depth in in one direction. Um, I do think I have great guests on, so I, I always really enjoy when I get to talk with them. Um, and there's not a huge variance, you know, in how difficult or, or, Easy it is, but there have been a few guests that I'm like, okay, you know, this is this is rugged. Try yeah. to drag this conversation out, but very rarely happens. Um, so I would say, yeah, I would say I'd, I lean towards liking the individual more. If I had to do more of one, I would probably do more solos. So I guess okay. that would be the answer. Um, but yeah, so then we do, you know, I do interviews with guests, whether they're mental health professionals, um, sometimes uh, physical fitness trainers, um, priests, you know, and talk about spiritual life or issues within the church. I do stuff with my wife and we'll talk about relationship stuff. Um, so yeah, so really just anybody who I feel like has something good to say within one of those kind of areas, you know, and then we try to deep dive into that. Sometimes we'll do some crossovers and talk about several of the different pillars. I'm not super like stuck into one. Gotcha. One thing I strive to do with the guests is to be similar to what we're doing. And, um, you know, uh, what just seems more organic to me is just kind of doing more conversational rather yeah. than, uh, like real interview style, right? you know? So I try to give people the, the experience of like sitting around you and you probably experienced this before, you know, you sit around with a group of people and there's some people who might not feel super informed on the topic, but there's like two or three people who really do and they're really kind of like carrying the conversation and people are kind of like listening We're, in and learning, nodding along, you know? Yeah. And just kind of like, Oh shit. Yeah. yeah. Oh, i sorry. I don't know if it's fine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> kind of like, Oh, I've never thought about it that way before, you know? Um, I generally try to not curse out
0: the gate on somebody that, else. That's fine. I, don't know I uh, what the rules are. I don't know about you, but I have found that in-person conversations have a dynamic that is about ten times better than doing the whole Riverside or Zoom oh, podcast yeah. conversation. I love the in-person. So we're in-person right now. We are. I'm looking at you across the table. Yeah. And just the vibe that you can have with someone in person is so much different than over Zoom. It is. I love doing in-person recordings. Like my dream would just be to do live in person recordings for Absolutely. every guest that I have, but no, you got to use this Riverside thing, and and then you find yourself like staring at a camera. And I put my episodes up on YouTube, so I mean, this one's not going to be because there is no camera here, and you know, I prefer it that way because I'd rather have no camera and be live and in person. But right, uh, do you do you like to do live conversations when you can?
1: Yeah, I've only ever done a few of them. Um, every episode with my wife has been in person, uh, but I've had yeah, probably. Three other guests, I want to say, okay. maybe four, um, that I've done in person. It is definitely better. You That's, just huddle around
0: one mic. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, which is not ideal. So this is definitely the most comfortable I've been um, doing with another person. But I think it's definitely something that when we move to our, you know, our next, our next place, I really want to have a better setup. Nice. I, this was a huge upgrade. I was doing like the kitchen table um, where I was living in Kansas when I was at Benedictine. That's but, what my
0: wife and I started when we were doing a podcast. We started a podcast in 2015. Like we yeah. were, we were. I like to tell people wow. that we were on the cutting edge of the podcast Literally. wave. Yeah, Oh, um, geez. And there were not many podcasts then. It was not a saturated market. So no. we actually had, I think we had more listeners in our first year than we ever did after that. Really? Well, wow. not because, I mean, we got better at it. And I think our content got better as we went along. But there were just not many podcasts out there. So yeah. tons of people found our podcast and That's were listening crazy. to it. Yeah, it was really interesting. 2015. A lot of fun. Yeah, we so we did our own podcast for four years and then, for and then four years it. for real. Maybe it was even five years no maybe we shuttered it we might have shuttered it in 2020 it was 2019 or 2020 i think but wow yeah, it was a while I what think was, was that one about it was called vernacular and it, the i
1: think you told me before but it was a while ago
0: yeah the subtitle of it and the podcast art was the art of being human so it actually sounds relatively similar to yours we did not have an established framework of seven pillars or anything like that but we just took a holistic approach to life and said Look, this is an amazing life that we have, and there is a way to live it well, and we wanna explore what that looks like. So we would have, we had mental health therapists on, we had, you know, foodies on to talk about food. We're, my wife and I are big food people, so food is is a great way. Self-described food snob. Yeah, that's true, I did. (laughs) Yeah, I did describe myself as a food snob, and it is true. We went to a barbecue place last night, and you know, I gave it a five out of 10. (laughs) But coming from the Texas, five out of 10 going in. What, yeah. what, what did you think? How was that barbecue last night?
1: Um, I would agree with you that my sandwich was, I would probably give it a six out of 10. Okay. Um, it really wasn't mind blowing. I did think the cornbread was strong, and okay. then the banana pudding was. Well, I mean, the banana pudding game is. Like eight solid, and a half. Yeah. But
0: I don't go to a barbecue place for the banana pudding. No. You know? It's it's nice if they've got it, but. No, I definitely get that. Yeah. All right. You, you so, are too far off. Uh, so how do we know each other, Nathan? Let's talk about that a little bit. We. We work together at Hallow. So we do. I assume you talk about your job on your podcast, right? I
1: do, yeah. Not super often, but I, I mean, people know what I
0: do. I just vent sure. and <laughs> crap about my my job <laughs> yeah. all the time. <laughs> just coming to complain about your boss. So your listeners know you work at Hallow? They do. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So I, and awesome I, I do, like, I share, like, a promo
1: code and stuff like that every now Nice, and then. nice, good. Got that for Taylor. Know. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, yeah Good, yeah. good. You know, um, shout, what, shout out to Buckley. What's the promo code? Uh, well it used to be just Seeking Excellence was the promo code Mm. and then she was supposed to fix my promo code and then she I don't know if she's fixed it yet or changed it I know they were going through like a whole like affiliate revamp so um, I was one of the OG early affiliates we didn't have a lot of listeners when we first started but um Yeah, yeah. So I've had that for a while, but I don't, I like always put the link. So I always add the link somewhere. But I still think Seeking Excellence will give you at least a month for your All right, go ahead and try that out. Go to Halo. Put a promo. I mean, we could always change it after this, right? We have this within our controls. Oh, yeah, for sure. I don't know why. We'll do it live.
0: We'll we'll do it live. Um,
1: (laughs) Just make it whatever we want.
0: Yeah. So we worked together at Halo. That's how we met, but we also share a common military background. So I was in the Air Force for seven years active duty. Yeah. Tell me about your Army career.
1: Yeah. So I, I, Commissioned as infantry officer two days before graduation in college in uh, 2015, on May 8th, or May 10th, 2015.
0: You were at Mount St. Mary's University? I was, yeah. I went to Mount St. Mary's in Emmitsburg, Maryland. I don't know if I told you this, actually. So we were in the Diocese of Colorado Springs for two and a half years, and we were just there last weekend for my son's godfather's diaconate ordination on his way to the oh, priesthood okay. transitional diaconate. Those seminarians from the Diocese of Colorado Springs go to Mount St. Mary's for seminary.
1: Really? Yeah. No, I didn't know that. So you would so that's where he's at.
0: You would have overlapped with him for, I think, a year. Yeah. Um, maybe my timing might be slightly off. I think off, maybe my senior year. You would at least overlap, have overlapped with a lot of the priests in the Diocese of Colorado Springs. because that's, that's wild. Where, that's where they go. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I was just reaching out to the University of Wisconsin, uh, like their college center. Okay. You know, to try to get them a hallow. Yeah. The priest who I reached out to, the Proclio Vicar, was like, Do you remember me from the Mount? And I, I was like, I knew he looked super familiar, but I nice. couldn't remember what I knew him from. But I was like convinced that we
0: did not have seminarians from Wisconsin. Is there a lot of overlap between the undergrads and the seminarians there?
1: No, oh. I wouldn't say so. Not on a general basis, Got but it. I was close with a lot of them. Got it. Yeah. Cool. I grew really close to uh, a few of them. And so I spent like a decent amount of time there. Um, I want to get back to the Army thing,
0: but yeah. is Mount St. Mary's an authentically Catholic university?
1: It's a great question. So it's not on the Newman Guide. Okay. As of, I want to say like 2017 or 2019, which I thought was actually, I thought they actually got removed before I went there. But I now I'm under the understanding based on like the Newman Society article I read like a month ago that I think they actually got dropped after I graduated. So I think it was on the Newman Guide when I went there, at least when I started out. We had a great president, President Powell, um, who, Powell, Powell. Powell? Yeah. Oh, okay.
0: Yeah. I just thought like POW Powell is a pretty cool last name. Yeah, <laughs> it <That> would be.
1: <laughs> but no, President Powell, and he was um he was great. And he was there for, man, I don't know, decades. And then he retired, I think my junior year. Well, like twenty fourteen. Okay. Senior year went through a lot trying to find a new president. We got this British guy we brought in. I think his last name was Newman, if I'm not mistaken. And he was just a strange cat. And he did not live a, up to the name, huh? Huh? No, dude was there for like six months. Yikes! Yeah, didn't didn't last super long. And then we had like a um, transitional, you know, um, somebody that was just there temporarily. And then we had a uh, uh, president trainer who's there now, who's actually a retired uh, field artillery officer from the well, army.
0: My dad was—he's not retired, but he did he did five years, I think, active field artillery as well. Oh wow! Yeah. yeah. So. Queen of Battle, I think they call it, or I, King of Battle. King of Battle, yeah. yeah. Queen king of, of battle. That's yeah, you, right? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, my apologies. <laughs> I forgive you. So
1: President Trainer has definitely not held up the Catholic identity of the, ah, the place. Sorry to hear that. Yeah, it's a bummer. But we had something, the first thing that I saw, I remember I came home. Dude, I want to say it was like come home from the appointment, or it was like my first time home after something, a big training event or something like that. I was definitely active duty at the time. And uh, he had put in like the alumni magazine. They had like this, um, an, an announcement for two men who had gotten engaged. Two men that I went to school with actually. They were wow. a year younger than me, maybe two years younger than me. Um, and they, they put, put in like the alumni To each other, magazine. I assume. Not yes, like, correct. Yeah, correct. Yep. And they're like, you know, we just celebrate big achievements or big moments in the lives of our alumni. And I think that was the start kind of. And then last year or no, two years ago, Damn, yeah, two years ago. It was like, yeah, in the fall of, of 2020, and we can get more into this later, there was like some BLM stuff that was going on at the school. And I responded to one of the videos that like one of the current students made and stuff like that. Did you go
0: viral, in your response?
1: Uh, I wouldn't say I went viral, but it was definitely one of my most watched Instagram lives because okay. it was definitely like a big topic within the Mount St. Mary's community. And her video had gotten a lot of attention, and I was like the first person to like dare to – Respond push back and not only that but also like as a, a fellow black person you know what i mean to yeah. to respond back and disagree because he was really coming for one of the philosophy professors who i uh knew and um yeah i felt like was being very unfairly criticized but yeah. but yeah so i love the mount though i had a great time there regardless of of what it was like as a catholic institution for me it was um i was like vaguely involved in campus ministry you know we had some pretty weird campus ministry kids and so i would say i was deeply involved at all times but um led a few retreats went on a few retreats so it sounds like going into college you were committed catholic i was committed uh to an extent i would say you know like i went there and i like definitely was catholic i was definitely going to mass every sunday um i had been going to mass every sunday since i got my driver's license at 16 and some like Decent.
0: Only since then, but were you not raised Catholic? No. Oh wow.
1: Yeah. So I was baptized Lutheran as a baby. Uh, My dad was raised and was kind of like Southern Baptist, but really wasn't practicing anything when I was born. Um, And then I went to Methodist preschool, and so we went to Lutheran church. I would say, if I had to guess, probably three times a month from like birth until uh, you know ten or so. Wow. Okay. And at that point, we had kind of stopped going to church. But in kindergarten, I started Catholic school. And so, one of my—I always say, like
0: my Methodist wor- preschool, Catholic. kindergarten Catholic,
1: yeah, okay. baptized Lutheran, yeah,
0: Baptist father, just a popery, exactly. Yeah. So you're getting and it what all. What about your mom? Was she?
1: She was baptized and raised Lutheran, Lutheran, yeah. Oh, so sorry. she okay. went to church, yeah, a lot. So that's yeah, that's where the Lutheran came from. Right. And uh, I think she had kind of fallen away from her faith before having me, but kind of like a lot of Catholics do. I think she kind of like had this like revival and was like, and that's why she paid more to send me to a Methodist preschool. And she didn't have a an aversion to any denominations because she wasn't really trained or educated on like the differences. Yeah. Um, and she went to Lebanon Valley College in PA, which is I want to say a Methodist school, a Methodist university. It's, it's definitely has some, or maybe it's Episcopalian. I can't remember, but there's some Protestant affiliation. I'll look
0: it up while you're talking right now.
1: I love that. And uh, so yeah, so she just wanted me to like have Jesus in my life, you know, and and believe in God and um, be Christian. Those are the those
0: are great goals.
1: Yeah, no, I love all of those things, and that's why we are where we are today. She's also um, a
0: practicing Catholic now as well. Whoa, that's cool. Okay, so give me just real quick, give me that story for you and your mom.
1: So yeah, so twelve year old in your
0: family who crossed the Tiber. I
1: will twelve year old (laughs) crossed the Tiber. Twelve year old year was the hardest year of my um, like family life growing up, and so a lot of difficult things. I think on top of like some of the you know, dramatic things that were happening. My parents' relationship was deteriorating rapidly, Um, had, you know, a lot of just drama in my family, people going to prison and things like that, siblings. And uh, along with all of that, being biracial, um, I was really kind of hitting this difficult moment in middle school where I feel like everybody kind of goes through this identity crisis. I was in middle school in like the early 2000s or mid-2000s, so like 2004, 2005, 2006. And was just really like extra struggling with it. Like, yeah. how am I supposed to behave? Like, what am I supposed to do? Like, how am I supposed to talk? I always felt like I was too black for the white kids and too white for the black kids in my dress and in my, um, you know, the verbiage that I use and things like that. And so going into eighth grade, I was really struggling with all of that. And I was like, you know what? I want to receive communion. I want to be a part of something. And so we had stopped going to church for a couple of years at that point, maybe Christmas and Easter. Yeah. But I was like, I, I was going to mass more than I was going to the Lutheran church. And so I'm like, I want to be a part of this, you know? And I always say that, like, I was just kind of a, a kid that, like, I went to history class, math class, science class, and I believed everything that they taught me. I didn't question that. And so it was just natural. And I'm kind of shocked that more people don't do this because I went to religion class and they said, this is the body of Christ. You need to go to confession, you know? Yeah. And I believed them. Yeah. And they weren't pushing it. I, I mean, like, most of my classmates are not practicing Catholics now. Well, that'd be from grade school or high school. But um I I knew that like I was like, I believe this because they're teaching me this. And so I was like, I told my mom, I was like, Hey, I think I want to become Catholic. And she's like, Great, do it, you know. And so I did it at 13. At that time I was only one. About in the next year or so, my mom committed to wanting to become Catholic as well. But my dad had been married before. Mm. And so she actually had to get his first marriage annulled. Yes. Before she could become a Catholic. So that took uh about two or three years to get that done. And wow. so she did RCIA and then had to wait a really long time and she would go to massively most of the time, but there was definitely weekends where she'd be working and like my dad would just drop me off at mass at like 14 and I'd just go by myself. They'd get like my friend's mom to take me back yeah. home after. <laughs> um, my best friend's mom was my confirmation sponsor. Then when I was 16 or 17, I was my mom's confirmation sponsor. That's like, so cool. Yeah. Wow. Which is Which is one of my uh, life highlights, which I really didn't appreciate as much at the time because I didn't understand what it meant or, sure, you know, didn't really like grasp it. But, um, yeah, still a beautiful thing to look back on.
0: And how about anyone else in your family now that your dad follows suit? Eventually? No, my dad
1: started going to church again. Okay. So he goes to, yeah, um, Baptist churches and and has started going again. Um, very interesting uh perspective and approach to to Christianity, which I'm very open to getting into. But he is yeah, he's an interesting man in a lot of ways. But he has started going back to church, which has been uh net positive for sure. And then um my mom's best friend uh, and her two kids, my godbrother and sister, converted a few years after my mom. Okay. And so I got to be my godbrother's confirmation sponsor when he converted. Wow. he was like 12 or 13 at the time.
0: And you have no As siblings?
1: Well. I have six half-siblings. So my dad okay. has seven kids by five different women. Got it. And I'm the youngest of them. Um, the oldest is, I think, turning 50 or 51 this year. Wow. Yeah. And I'm 28. So, wow. Yeah, was a big
0: gap. That's amazing. Do you have relationships with all of them?
1: Um, To an extent, okay. yeah. Yeah, you know, so very they, they vary greatly. Um, But there's some that I was, I grew up around, you know, one or two of them the most. And then there was two of my brothers I didn't know about until I was 16. I didn't meet them until I was, or I didn't know about until I was 12. Um, Oh, yeah, they were, one of them was 16 when I met them. So I didn't know about them until I was 12. Learned about them at two different times during that year, which also contributed to the yeah. family drama of age 12, which I wasn't even thinking about when
0: I told you that. <laughs> <laughs> he was my hardest year. That's I forget amazing. this part. Like it's one of the lighter
1: things that happened that year.
0: There's a lot of trauma that year.
1: It was, yeah, yeah, it was, it was rough. But I learned about them different times during that year, and then meeting them for the first time. And so, yeah, one of my brothers was 16, and one of them was 18 when I met them. Wow, uh, for the first time in my life. And so I'm actually closest with those two. I would say probably now, um, one of them I always say is the most similar to me. Um, uh, Josh, he is a practicing uh, Lutheran. Him and his wife, like they get their kids uh, baptized. Wow, they, they, you know, got married before they had kids. Um, he, what a concept. You know, very yeah. successful in his job. He's, the, I think, the only other one that graduated from college. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so we have a lot in common. And we look the most alike, which is funny too. Nice. Like people were cracking up at my wedding, um, finally meeting him for the first time. But the other one was uh, enlisted in the Air Force for six years, oh. Jason, um, who I met later in life. But, so, yeah, so it was interesting. So that, that's kind of what all led, like I was going to Mass, like I said, when I got my driver's license, I went to Mass every Sunday um, and was living a very ratchet life despite that. But when I got into college, I really did have that natural guilt. Like my conscience was formed enough to know that like sleeping around and getting as drunk as possible was like not a good thing, um, despite really not having anybody actually tell me that. Yeah. Um, but I kind of felt it. And so when I went to the Mount, I was like, maybe, th- maybe like I could start over. You know, like I, there wasn't like friends from high school that were going and I was like, nobody's going to really know who I am. So I kind of get this fresh start, which I really appreciated in a lot of times in my life, you know, um, I've gotten a lot of fresh starts in that way when, you know, went active duty and went to Fort Benning. I was like, nobody knows me. Right. You know, you could kind of be whoever you want. And so, um, yeah, so really grateful for that. So so I came in like primed, but I wouldn't say I was like a devout, you know, practicing Catholic at the time. That makes
0: sense. Yeah. (laughs) Totally makes sense. But I was ready. Right. Yeah. Right. Wow, that's really cool though. And then RGC, why did that happen?
1: Yeah, so when I was ten years old, I saw the movie SWAT. i Have nice. you ever seen L. I've, cool J? And,
0: I've not seen SWAT, um, but Colin uh,
1: Farrell, big fan. Samuel L. Jackson. I I often will preface my movie preferences by saying that um, I am like this is one of my favorite movies. I'm not claiming it's one of the best movies. You fair know? enough. So yeah. I think people need to know that. But I did really enjoy it, and I left that movie, and I was like, I want to be on a SWAT team, hands down, and uh all of them were like navy seals marine recon mm-hmm. and stuff like that beforehand and so i was like so i have to be in the military first so it i my, love
0: 10 year olds logic it's yeah just, it's just you know impeccable. It, just, it all added up it makes sense and so i
1: i'm like uh you know up my gi joe game the little like green dudes with the you know parachutes throwing them off the bow course, of course yeah um and i'm loving it and so I, I internalized it apparently because i got to college and i was a criminal justice major and oh. then i'm like
0: you were really going the SWAT route, yeah. Yeah.
1: I was actually at a point when I was at kind of like my lowest in high school at like age 15. I'd really gotten into smoking weed and really was just like hating who I was becoming. And I got caught with weed and condoms in my room um, by my mom. Uh, and we had a really tough conversation and just kind of like a, a real low period. And at the end of that, I was like, you know, I think I'm just going to listen to the military. Right. I was like, I just felt like I needed that, you know, just complete discipline, like revamp, you yeah. know, total Not a terrible idea for sure. No, it was worse. There's worse options. Uh, but she was not having it because she worked several jobs for me to go to private school. So yeah. she's like, homie, you're going to college whether you want to or not. So she's like, might as well What a good that. mom. Yeah. And so I'm like, all right, I'll go to college first and then I'll enlist. Now, despite the fact that my, uh, my mom's, she's technically her stepdad, but it was really my grandfather my whole life. He retired as an 06 in wow. the army. Cool. And never talked about it. And so I didn't know the difference between officer and enlisted. I right. thought she just joined the military, right? And so I get to college. And it's the first, uh, first week of school activities fair. And I'm walking down and I see this big army booth, starting first class, Hollingsworth, standing there in uniform. And I walk up, I'm like, what's this about? And he's like, dude, uh, you know, we pay you to go to school. Could you get a scholarship, you know? And then you get to be an officer afterwards. I'm like, what's an officer? And he kind of breaks it down for me there. And I'm like, I'm definitely interested. He's like, come to PT tomorrow. Nice. So I go to PT. Um, it was like a Friday, right? And I remember they did like a sports PT. So they're playing some yep. game. And I'm like, look. You got to like, get
0: the get the newcomers interested that way. Yeah, <laughs> exactly.
1: I'm like, these dudes can't catch. Like, they were just like the least athletic people. Yeah. You know, I'm like, they they're fairly, fit. Yeah. But this is like horrific. Like, right. I just, it wasn't what I expected. Um, And so I was kind of shook up by it. And so I kind of participated throughout <laughs> my freshman year. But I got serious sophomore year. and finally got contracted, got a three-year scholarship. Okay. Nice. Um, But once I, I found out, you know, I was like, they'll pay for me to go to college. My parents were on the brink of divorce and actually separated for the last time my freshman summer. And my mom worked really hard, but my dad definitely earned more money. And so I knew with with that separation that I wanted to have more financial freedom from him. So I didn't want to be dependent and controlled. So I was like, you know what? Worst case scenario, I'll go reserves and just kind of like dabble in this yeah. for eight years. But I want to pay for college. And so that was kind of my plan at first and then over time it just grew on me and i was like i love this and so it was like my favorite thing in the world when i was in rOTC
0: but obviously you didn't love it enough to keep doing it after your initial commitment right so no my
1: time in the army was all downhill rOTC yeah. was my peak yeah next was Ibolic, like my infantry training down in georgia we loved that had a great time that's at um, benning yeah yeah and then it was all downhill from there that was pretty much it.
0: so <laughs> i mean much we, much we, don't, we don't need to dwell on this too much i mean obviously we both have uh military officer careers in our rearview mirrors, but give me like the the 30 second summary of why your active duty career was all downhill post ROTC.
1: Yeah. You know, I think um, one of the biggest challenges for me was that uh, it just didn't really like, I ultimately found out, you know, especially like after the army doing like strength finders and stuff like that, like most of my weakest, like my, my I don't know, we can't say weakest strengths, but the bottom of the list for me is like things you'd think would be fitting for a military officer, right? Like discipline, like rucking. consistency. <laughs> rucking was really bad. I was really bad at rucking. I have like the flattest feet possible. Oh man. And so it was always really brutal for me. I yeah. was always really good at uh heavy rucks like during missions. Yep. But like the free like 12 mile, 20 yeah. mile, like oh dude. Just take a hundred yeah. pounds. I'm and... I'm at the I'm at the minimum. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. three hours, two hours and fifty six minutes. Um, but so basically,
0: temperamentally, it did not suit you.
1: Yeah, it like, wasn't great. ARP. You know what I mean? And so I, I needed a little bit more freedom and things like that. Like, that's why I like working from home and doing what I do now, you know. Um, but yeah, it was just really challenging in that way. But I, I'm always really grateful for it. I think it, it I taught me a ton about myself, about life, about yeah. leadership. Um, and so I would do it again, 100%, okay. you know. And I wouldn't change anything that I did for four years. But um, I think I would have really struggled. And, and I think like with a lot of jobs, you look down the road and you see – you know, what guys' lives are like, you know, these majors and lieutenant colonels. And I'm just like, I don't want that at all.
0: I remember having a conversation with my boss's boss's boss. No, I guess it was my boss's boss in something like 2016. And he was having, con- he was at 06 and he was having a conversation yeah. with me and just saying like, look at the time, Captain Crippen, you can go far if you, if you want to do this thing, yeah. you can go far. And I did not say this to him, but I looked at him and I thought, look, if I am at, so he was, he was the, um, no, I shouldn't say who, he, I shouldn't say what position he was because I could reveal who he was, but he was high up in my career field, right? Let's just say that. And I just looked at him and thought, look, if I am in the top 1% of my career field, then in 20, uh, 24, 25 years, I could find myself in your job. And your job looks terrible. <laughs> So,
1: you said that too? No, no,
0: no. This is oh, what i thinking. Thinking. <laughs> thinking. And so, why would I do that? Like, he's right. telling me like, look, you could be in my that's position. That's what's crazy. Yeah. You and they'll, out. They'll and say I'm like, it I like, I don't, I don't want, I don't want yeah. your position. That looks like a terrible position. Like, bro, that's my nightmare. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> i woke up in a cold sweat. Yeah. <laughs> <Right. night. laughs> exactly. It's those types of things Dude, that definitely inspire wild. Inspire crisis. The other
1: thing that got me too, I don't know if you ever felt this, but like, I went to Afghanistan in 2017 and like, one thing I really thought about was- Man, like I know guys who are dying to deploy, right? It's like everything they've ever wanted, they just want right. to deploy. And I went over there and like basically sat around for six months, you know, as infantry in the eighty second. So tough. I'm like, yeah. if any conventional unit, like if we're gonna do something, like like we were it. We had we technically had a combat mission, right? And um there was very little I mean, some people, you know, had like firefights here and there, but it was not like this uh world war II scenario where it's like we need people to like be in the service right now and and go and fight and serve. And so that was kind of what like when I was over there and you kind of put your life on pause for 6 months and like nothing gets advanced and everything goes on without you at home. Um and I was single at the time. But I was thinking about I saw all the soldiers around me who had uh, were married with kids and things like that and I was like there's guys who are dying to come do this. I don't want to do this if this is what it is, you know what I mean? And so I was like, anybody can do this. And I really wanted to find something where I was like, what is something that Nathan Crankfield was made to do? You know, something that was more specific for me that maybe if it's not, I'm the only person in the world who can do it that I'm like one of, you know, a smaller number than thousands of people who could come and do this, right? Yeah. <laughs> who can walk yeah. to the talk that's every cool. day, and, you know, yeah, and be an XO on deployment of HHC. That's like, the dream. Yeah. <laughs> that's, the, that's the dream. Dude, I was like, this ain't for me. So um, good times, good experiences. It taught me a lot, and I'm really grateful for it. But um, yeah, when I looked down the line, I was like, I don't want to be
0: doing this. So I want to get into some of your sort of uh, ideological progression that we have that we've talked about in in private conversations um but so give me like the two minute summary post army what did you do where have you been since then yeah where do you find yourself i mean now now obviously you're working at Hallow and you are running your seeking excellence podcast and project and all of that stuff. But between now and the army, what ha- what happened?
1: Yeah. So I I got out one part of the other thing that I kind of discerned when I was in Afghanistan, when I was like, well, I loved ROTC. So it was hard for me to kind of imagine that I wasn't, I was like voted most likely to be a career guy in the army. Right. And I was like, what else did I love in college? And I love playing basketball. But um, my real second favorite thing I did was give talks and speak and do ministry stuff. Right. And get to meet with people one-on-one and help them to grow closer to God. And so, you know, leading Bible study and all that. And so I was like, I want to do something within the church. I don't know what that looks like yet, but I'd love to do something for the church. And so when I was getting out, I'm like, I'm an infantry officer. I don't know if any of this is appealing to any church organization. So I was yeah. like. Did upon- you just run
0: the priesthood at all? Did you?
1: I did was- in college. Okay. I felt pretty confident that that was not it. Sure. Um. And so when I was getting And now out, we
0: haven't mentioned this, but now you're you're married. Correct. You're, yeah. yeah. Now you're a family man. Yeah. Firmly in that vocation. That's, exactly. That's great. Locked in, baby. Yeah. Um, and so yeah so i was getting out and i
1: I did like the, the jmo you know um recruiter programs and stuff like that to see because i was like i need to have a backup plan in the secular world if i'm not going to be appealing to churches and i got offered a lot of youth ministry positions and other positions but then i ended up going to dynamic catholic and i served as a uh, parish consultant for them okay during what they were doing dynamic parish at the time um and for me like because I had read Four Sons Dynamic Catholic, like I saw Matthew Kelly speak my senior year, like I always compare it. I'm a big Yankees fan. It was like Derek Jeter going to the Yankees. Like that was like, you know, to me, the greatest Catholic organization there is. So yeah, that's cool. Got to start off on this like extreme high out of the army and was just so pumped about it. And I was just like, man, this is so cool. And it was, it was a great, I only worked for them for a year, but it was a great year. Uh, I learned a ton and it was really revealing for me because I had not experienced a church, you know, Kind of as a as a kid, like I would belong to a parish on St. Margaret Mary's in Harrisburg, but I, didn't, I wasn't like fully involved. I didn't have like a family that was involved, right? But I did get really into my faith in college and then in the army. And so I'd never really had like the true kind of like American parish experience. right? And so getting a deep dive in the 10 parishes across the country as a consultant was, was really revealing for me and eye-opening and helped me to understand the church a lot more. And then I started uh, the podcast and a lot of other things happened, but I started dating my now wife, and she was working for Sarah Swafford in Atchison, Kansas. And so a job opened up at Benedictine right when my job at Dynamic Catholic ended. Yes. And so I went and became a resident director at Benedictine College for eight months in Newman Hall, the most ratchet hall on campus. And so... I uh, definitely took a, a decrease in lifestyle, but uh, convinced my wife to marry me and to move successfully all within like six months. And so, amazing. That, yeah, mission was accomplished. It was actually in like four months that I convinced her to do both of those things. Wow. And so, um, yeah, I tore my Achilles in January of that that year, of oh, 2021. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yikes. My left Achilles, um, which brought us together in a lot of ways. It was really uh, unifying. And beautiful and awful at the same time. But then I got the job at Hallow. You know, I went to high school with Alessandro DeSanto, one of our co-founders. And so I talked with him and Alex Jones when I was moving to to Denver and was like, Hey, you know, what's up? There's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, we can get into that another time. But um ended up getting offered the job and uh, now work for Hallow, moved to Denver and love Denver. And yeah, we've been, we just came up on a year of living there. And so I do sales and B2B stuff for, for Hallow. you know, working with colleges, universities, grade schools, high schools,
0: and stuff like that. Denver is pretty great. Have you gotten into the mountain scene at all? Done 14ers? Not too
1: much because okay. last year I was still kind of recovering. I was still in physical therapy Makes and stuff. Sense, yeah. And so this summer we're looking to do a lot more hiking and things like that. I've only gone uh, snowboarding a couple times okay. as well. But
0: that's just so expensive now. I used to it do is. snowboarding. Mm-hmm. When I was in school at the Air Force Academy, I would go. But man, now it's crazy. And especially when you have a family, the cost goes up. I mean, even if it's just you and your wife paying for two lift right. tickets is obviously twice as expensive as paying for one. And then when you have young kids like me, you've got to pay for, you've got to either pay for like their lift tickets or their lift tickets and their lessons or their childcare. And so it's just, you're like very, very quickly. Into the thousands of dollars. Yeah, for it's a rich people ski outings. Yeah, uh, experience for sure. Even more so than golf for sure. Yeah, it's crazy. Absolutely, it's fun though. Yeah. Um. All right. Well, let's talk about some of your your ideological progression. You have <laughs> described to me in previous conversations <laughs> that you once were a progressive Democrat. Yes. And are now a conservative Republican.
1: Yeah definitely is that, is that a correct characterization it is i would i would definitely i usually uh, characterize it as i went from being a democrat to a conservative i do i am registered as a republican now got it. in the, the state of colorado but um i'm always more hesitant to just fully align myself with republican party and there's only a few things i always had disagree with in that and we're going to talk about some of that stuff yeah. i think but um i like i think conservative encapsulates a lot of what i feel like i am um more than saying that i'm republican um, But yeah, but I still think, I mean, I wouldn't disagree with that description either,
0: you know? Makes sense. Um, I used to be a registered Republican and I left the Republican Party in 2000. We just have one of our sound engineers, her (laughs) son, walking by looking at us in the window here, (laughs) thinking, what are you guys doing? Um, I left the Republican Party in 2015, I think it was, Mm. over their embrace of Trump and just said, this is not for me. Oh, that's right. And at the time, I was thinking I might actually become a Democrat. There are lots of things, really? social justice, stuff that I can agree with. Not social issues per se, like the, the, the normal social issues. For example, abortion. I'm 100% pro-life. My father-in-law is the senior counsel at Americans United for life. Wow. My wife and I have always been super passionate about pro-life issues. So that is a huge sticking point for me. And actually the sole reason why I did not at any previous point become a Democrat. But so I thought I started thinking maybe I should become a Democrat because care for the poor, uh, lifting up the downtrodden, uh, better funding for public education, all of those things to my mid-20s mind sounded really good. Yeah. And there's this quote from, I think it's Ronald Reagan who says, if you're not a Democrat when you are in your 20s or you know, at, at age 20 or something, you don't have a heart. Oh yeah, and it's if, you're not, if you're not a Republican by age fifty, you don't have a brain. Yeah. I and always so, I always say if you're if you're
1: young and conservative, you don't have a heart. If you're old and liberal, you don't have a brain. That's right. Yeah. I didn't uh, know it was Ronald Reagan. I've, I've been, I've it, said that it might be one of a thousand those times that I never know who said so it. So you thought it was
0: you? Like it was no, 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 I mean, no, it's, definitely a good I, you came it up up. With it. I heard it from somewhere, but I was like, I don't I know think it's Reagan. But it also, it could be one of those quotes that one person said. That would make sense because he long, was kind of, he went on that journey,
1: right? It, like it was, probably uh, would make sense. And it yeah, seems like it's one of those Reagan
0: style quips, but it also very well could be just a sort of an apocryphal quote that's been floating around out there and is often attributed to various people like Reagan. Anyway, it's real though. Yeah, I don't want to offend people who are, you know, Uh, self-identified liberals or registered Democrats who are, uh, at the age of 50. And I, I don't want to say that they don't have a brain, (laughs) but there is something there that, um, I think many of the sort of core tenets of what we might call progressive politics in America today do grab at the heart. And then you scratch under the surface and you realize, oh, actually this is not what it claims to be. For example, I mentioned greater public funding of education, greater funding of public education. I used to think that was a good idea. Until I saw, you know, now I have children and I've like looked into public schools and now I see just the rampant misuse of government funds and how no amount of throwing money at this bottomless pit of a problem that we call public schools will actually fix the problem. So now I am 100% focused on school choice and vouchers and charter education and uh, tax, tax subsidies for private education, especially yeah. religious education, classical education. I mean, that's where I am now. So a total evolution mm-hmm. of, of what I once thought. Uh, throwing money at the problem, for example, will not fix the problem. So that's, I think, just one example of how, yeah, this sounds good. Let's definitely make sure that our public schools have the money they need. Right. And then you realize that's actually not the problem, right? Yeah, so absolutely. So one example among many of, issues on which I've evolved just in the last year so you know this are well, you
1: coming back to the Republican Party or where do you kind of put yourself on the map?
0: yeah so I'm, I'm a registered I'm still a registered independent uh I don't think I will come back to the Republican Party now but if anything Nate this is gonna sound really weird if anything I've become more conservative since I was when I left the Republican Party <laughs> really yeah uh, I but don't I mean, mean,
1: to be fair, the Republican Party has become less conservative since right. you left the Republican yeah. Party. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah,
0: yeah so there are some, I think there are some things in which the, the Republican Party has moved you know, left that I don't oh, agree 100%. with. Uh percent And then, on the other hand, there are, there are still some concerns that I have with the direction of the, the party in general that aren't, that aren't really confined to a left-right binary. Yeah. But I think those are most exemplified by their support of Donald Trump. I did not vote for Trump, and I, I just will not vote for Trump. Again, if he runs, I really hope he's not the Republican nominee in yeah. 24. There are, you there didn't are vote for literally 16 dozens. or 20. I did not in 16 or 20. Really? Wow. I voted for. um 20 Evan. was
1: my first presidential election. I voted in. I had never voted. And you voted before. Trump.
0: I did. So I voted. I'm, I'm not voting Biden. <laughs> I, voted, I voted Evan McMuffin in uh 2016. I call him that because it's actually Evan McMullen. But uh, that was like, you know, Trump does those like those like pet names for yeah, all his opponents. Yeah. Evan McMuffin was what <laughs> he called Evan McMullen. I just think it's hilarious. So that is funny. So I, I voted for Evan McMuffin in 2016. And then in 2020 I actually voted third party and went with the American Solidarity Party. Um who is uh the vice presidential candidate was a committed Catholic. I had him on my my um podcast in advance of the election. Oh wow. It was, it was not a realistic shot at the presidency, but my argument was there's a, there's a better way. There's a better path, uh, and a better path than the sort of two party binary in which we find ourselves. And that while my vote will never contribute to the election of the president, the president is not going to be the head of this American solidarity party. What it does show is that there is a desire. There's an appetite for something outside of the, the Republican Democrat binary binary that we often find ourselves stuck in. Um, the American solidarity party I mean there are things on that platform that uh, I think I would do you know there there are there are policy issues uh on which I would find myself on a different side from the candidates who are running in that election, yeah, but the platform of the American solidarity party all it's, it's basically Catholic social teaching like turned into a platform <laughs> really? and so it's all things that I can get on board with that's interesting um even if there are obviously like prudential considerations that would translate into differing policies in pursuit of right. those aims if that makes sense yeah um but but it was it was good stuff and so i felt like uh with a clear conscience i could vote for the american solidarity party yeah yeah
1: that's interesting and so you you would still you would do that again in 2024 if it was trump i so uh, is Trump the only person on the republican you know i guess like that
0: we can see at being this on the yeah, ticket, at this point in time you, think you would not vote for that him? is the only person that i Whose whose conduct to date I find disqualifying. I'll put it that way. <laughs> That's a good uh, point. I mean, you know, <laughs> I don't, I, 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 don't rule out the. Uh, <laughs> That's really. Funny. I mean, I, I guess, and I put it that way for two reasons. Like, one, I don't rule out the possibility of repentance, right? Like, as Christians, we hold repentance yeah, for everybody. And so, if, I mean, I it's think unlikely, that, but possible. I think it's very unlikely, but, uh, but possible that if Trump were to come out tomorrow and say, "I'm sorry, I've been an arrogant ass for my entire life," I mean, there was that, uh, there was that interview he did. I forget who it was with, but it was in the run up to the. No, maybe was during his presidency. He was asked, "Like, do you ever, have you ever apologized for anything?" And he was like, "No, no, I don't think I have. I don't think I have anything to apologize for." Yeah. And so he has this this rather um, anti apology, anti forgiveness stance that is really, uh, I think it seems like he's sort of a tragic figure because I think grace and mercy is just unknown to Donald Trump, and I I wish that were different for his sake, absolutely, uh, and for the sake of his soul. But so, but I certainly don't realize don't don't um, completely discount the possibility of. Something like that. So, turn around. Yeah, a conversion of sorts. And so, yeah, I mean, if there was a conversion, then I can definitely see myself voting for Trump. Absent that, I definitely do not see myself doing it. I think his conduct to date has been disqualifying, and I certainly don't rule out the the possibility that any other Republican candidate would have similarly disqualifying <laughs> conduct in the future too. So, at this point in time, like out at of the realm possibility, yeah, looking at the potential field, he's the guy who I would. Yeah. he's the one guy who I would say I would definitely never never vote for, or you know, absent a, a sort of conversion or for, or um turnaround but um yeah that's where i am now i feel that but tell me so tell me more about your your journey so from progressive to or from democrat to conservative you said right yeah, that's how you describe yeah. it so what's that what, what was that journey like for you
1: yeah so i registered democrat when i was uh 18 and what really led to that my dad was democrat is democrat my mom's republican and we never really talked about politics lived in a pretty hard like no religion or politics family which i hated I hated subconsciously then, and hate consciously now.
0: <laughs> so I get the religion part, but you like you guys didn't talk about politics in Almost the house, never, and you wanted to. You thought that was, Well, not
1: that I wanted to. But I think that we ought to. Oh, okay, sure. And I think that I had one of my issues with my family when I was a kid. Um, this is like greater than this was true in, um, really, in my greater family on both sides as yeah. well. And I think when I was when I was a teenager, I think I had a desire to talk about things that mattered. And my family wouldn't do that. So I Got always, to. like, describe our, like, Thanksgiving and Easter dinners as, like, a greater, you know, cousins. Like, we're talking 20, 25 people, 30 people. As, like, oh, the potato salad is really good. Oh, this turkey's great. Who made this? You know, like, how's it going? Oh, good. How's work? Oh, it's going well. You know, like, it was just always, like, very, very stressful. It's pretty cold this stuff. week. Yeah. yeah, you know. And I was like, this is awful. Yeah. Dude. You know? I was like, that is pretty pretty terrible. I'm wrestling with like life's biggest questions, you know, and nobody's giving me any insight on anything. So anyways, uh, I I loved Obama in 2006, 7, 8, right? And so I was a huge Obama guy. We're both biracial. Like, I was like, man, like, I think part of me deep down as a teenager thought like he talks like I do. He dresses like I do. He plays basketball like I do. And he's like so embraced by the black community. I was like, maybe if he becomes the first president, like that'll change this perspective of the same things I always did that maybe not black, you know. I'm like, maybe that'll impact that and change that a little bit. And of course it didn't, but um, I foolishly hoped that it would. But I also think that I was drawn to his charisma. I was drawn to his success story, um, or at least what I thought it was at the time. <clears throat> and so, um, yeah. Really just was a huge fan. And he was also, I always like to clarify for a lot of people who don't know this, especially like young conservatives that like Obama in 2007 was not the Barack Obama we see today. Yeah. You know, it was just true for Hillary Clinton. It's true mm-hmm. for Joe Biden. true for Nancy Pelosi. Um, and I didn't like any of them back then, but I did, I do think it's important to clarify, like I talked about this in a BLM speech I gave a few months ago that like Obama ran on, like, traditional marriage. And even, like, if you watch his, like, 07, I think it was speech on race. Yep. Um, Maybe it was in 08. Like, sounded, like, he would sound conservative today. If you look at a lot of his clips and his talking points from back then um he definitely did not think that a man could become a woman in 2008
0: he, he doesn't today and either yeah that's true that's he, probably he definitely, true i mean he he says so but there's right. no yeah. way he, but actually he wouldn't have said that. it back then no
1: definitely um <laughs> so i think uh that was really that was really big but so i i did all of that and i think i you know i was really obnoxious about it and i was going to my catholic school and i would like wear obama stuff and it was like all about it i was super pumped today i mean
0: it one on. of the most one of the most like iconic campaign logos of all time i think that, oh yeah that sure. it was whoever whoever designed that yeah crushed it crushed it for sure
1: yeah and so i was all about them and then but the the thing is i was definitely because i was catholic I identified you know very strongly with my catholic faith i was pro-life but i didn't understand the importance of that issue okay and so i would never would have said that i was like pro-abortion i might have found myself like kind of libertarianish on it sure as like it's wrong for others but you know or it's wrong for me and like we shouldn't do it but like who knows what laws but a can squish make. otherwise yeah, yeah like joe biden I mean? basically exactly it um, is wrong
0: i personally but not a well wrong. thought
1: out like yeah. position on it you know what i mean but, but i joe think biden. that might yeah. have been <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> precisely yeah you're you're hitting it you're hitting it exactly where i was at and so i kind of you know progressed through high school i go into college and kind of still feel the same way okay i was criminal justice like borderline sociology so it was kind of like half sociology half criminal justice and we had this radical leftist um a uh, professor who was in the sociology department. And most of them were like pretty decently liberal, at least like I, I mean, said. mean, it's sociology. Like, libertarian, so yeah, yeah, you know. And so lots of like liberal influences there. So I kind of stayed, you know, Mount St. Mary's was kind of t- trending in that direction. Um, but I still like had my issues with a lot of stuff. And so that was kind of like where I feel like it first began because when I got to college, I tried to leave a lot of my issues and baggage and trauma and stuff at home. Yeah. And it was like, now I'm at this place you know, I deeply believed in like American racism. I'm like, we seem to be on the same playing field, you know, like in high school it was a lot harder because like, um, you know, look at my friends, like our, our beloved coworker. I'm like, he goes home to this huge, nice house. Like they yep. have all these advantages. He gets to travel to Harvard and Italy and do all these things. Like I felt like in college, I'm like, we all go back to the same dorm. Mm-hmm. We go to the same classes, yeah, you know, much we more eat the gal-terian. same food. Yeah. You know? And I'm like, this is on me now. And I felt like there was a lot of uh, students, especially black students who didn't take it that way and still continue to like perpetuate this, like I'm a victim, like it's unfair. And I just, like over time, I was just like, it's not because I really changed my life going to college. Like I had about a 3.0 graduating from high school and I made Dean's list every semester in college Nice because I just actually started trying. Right. And I was just like, maybe it wasn't race. Like maybe I was the asshole.
0: So coming out of high school, you were you convinced know? that you were the victim of systemic racism.
1: Yeah, more or less. Yeah, like to to varying degrees, racism from both sides, really, and to a certain extent, I was a victim of racism on both sides because I
0: did experience racism from white people and black people. Yeah, you know. Um, yeah, I was gonna let's unpack that a little bit more if you don't mind. Yeah, do you like how do you with the benefit of hindsight now and this sort of progression of your views on race? Do you still feel like you were the victim of systemic racism?
1: I wouldn't say systemic, okay. but I was the victim. Of, I, I experienced personal racism for sure.
0: Because black people thought you were too white. Yeah,
1: and so black people would tell me that I'm not black because of how I acted, which right. I think is the soft bigotry of low expectations from black people to black people. Okay. And Whose then, phrase is
0: that, the soft bigotry of low expectations? I don't know,
1: I forget. That's okay. an old one too. Um, but the other way for sure, I mean, my my high school girlfriend's dad like wouldn't look at me when I'd be in the room and his his mom was even worse. He, he was, was like, white. Yeah. Yeah. His mom was even worse. Uh, they were Italian. And she was like super against Like she would tell her like, I'm not going to send you birthday gifts. I'm not yeah. going to send you Christmas gifts until you're not with that kid anymore. Um, wow. Yeah. Good, How cool. old were you? And where did the bus stop? Like, I mean, it definitely happened. Um, I was 15 when we were dating, 15, 16.
0: Wow. And, and where so, did the bus stop?
1: Uh, well, the bus stop one happened, I think, when I was a little bit younger. I think I was like 14, 13 at that time. Yeah um and then yeah i mean in third grade i had this kid bullying me because i was black like you know making fun of my skin color and all this stuff and i was you know going to catholic school is one of a few especially in grade school we have a lot higher percentage in high school but grade school is like one of the few you know maybe four of us out of 40 kids like 10 yeah. percent and so uh definitely experienced a personal i don't think i would ever say that i was uh if anything i benefited from systemic racism in um uh Affirmative action, things like that, and applying to schools and getting grants and things, you know? So, like, I always look at the systemic part, and I'm like, I only ever, like, it only ever was beneficial. Personal discrimination and, like, people not liking me, yeah, I've experienced that. But on a systemic, like, systemized um, basis, it's only (laughs)
0: beneficial,
1: which is another great irony. And something that I learned very early on because I got accepted to the honors program. At the Mount, which also changed my life because being around those honors kids is what taught me to be like, oh, so you guys like study this way. This is how you take notes. You know, like I would borrow their notes. And I'm just like, I started to like understand how they were thinking and how they were approaching class, how they asked questions, and all this stuff. And I started doing it and I started succeeding. Yeah. Um. And I went from a 3.0 in high school to a 3.6, you know, 3.7 in college um, while doing all these other things. But I had this friend of mine in college, like this first or second week that was like, I had a 3.6 in high school. How are you in the honors program at a 3.0? And we were like, you know, we both knew the answer, right? And I was like, man, that's pretty awesome that I get to do this, but also kind of unfair, you know? Like, I don't know his life, but I don't know that mine was any harder because I was black. Right. You know, because people, you experience, especially being biracial, you get to see, like, my white family and my black family had different struggles and different difficulties, my parents, let's say. Um, But my mom's life was not easy, Mm -hmm. you know, by any means. And so I was like... You know kind of and that was always my dad's approach to racial stuff, too, is like black people suffer, white people suffer, Asian people suffer. like everybody goes through hardship. Um, what a concept, yeah, it's not this exceptional, yeah um suffering. I mean, there was a time where it was, sure, right. where it was very imbalanced, but I don't think we're there anymore. so so that was big. But my big thing to kind of give my overview of the real conversion, if you will, or transformation of my political views was. The army. So I became a huge, I was already pretty patriotic, um, which is like in 08 Obama would have also been pretty patriotic, right? Like everybody yep. loved America back then. Um, once also, he started, again, what a concept. Right, yeah. Loving your crazy. country. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in 2012, he yeah, obviously started to really shift that. Um started bringing up the systemic racism and so I'm in college I went to college in 11 and so all of this you know I'm having all these realizations of me benefiting from stuff and then the, the narrative starts to change you know 2013 um, what years were you when in college BLM and stuff started I was in college from 11 to 15 okay so really like pivotal time yeah. for BLM and all yeah. this stuff like it started during that time Um but I became more patriotic as I got into the army got around a lot more conservatives when I was in the army Um and in 2019 or March of 2018 or 19, I can't remember right now. I want to say it was 2019, um, Unplanned came out, the movie, the pro-life movie. So the Abby Johnson Abby horn. Johnson, yeah. Yep. And so I saw that and that was when I like got to really witness and experience like the, the horrific aspects of abortion and was like, wow, this is the most important issue of our time. Like I need to take this more seriously. I need to learn more about it. So I started like becoming, trying to become like a pro-life apologist. And uh, in the midst of that, discovered Daily Wire, discovered Thomas Sowell, discovered Larry Elder, you know what I mean? A lot of different things because it's YouTube, right? Like YouTube, you search something and you just get like other suggestions. And I was just like, wow, that was a hell of an argument for, you know, the Second Amendment. That was Mm -hmm. a hell of an argument for immigration laws. That was a hell of an argument for, (laughs) you know, gender policy or, you know, gay marriage. I never heard a secular uh, gay marriage argument before. Um, And so I was just exposing myself to all of these different things. And i had never heard before. Obviously, I'd heard all the leftist talking points because you watch CNN and you like literally just live your life in America, right? You're going to discover the left side. But I'd never really heard the right side. And so that was when I was like, I think I'm actually conservative. <laughs> so 2019 was really my big year where I got my Daily Wire membership and like my leftist tears tumbler. And was yeah. like, I think I'd already got definitely to the middle at that point, And then hearing all the logic from the right really pushed me over.
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's super interesting. I uh, I think it's one of the most fascinating things about this. There's a podcast called The Realignment, and they talk about just basically the realignment of American politics. Um, the you know for for so long, Democrats were the the party of the working class and this sort of uh, anti-establishment party for that reason, um, and the populist party, and the Republican Party was the party of Wall Street, of you know coastal right. moneyed elites. And now there's something really, really interesting happening, yeah, shit. which is yeah, there's there's a major shift, and it's not a complete flip flop. Republicans are still the party of Wall Street, but also there's also this like really powerful populist faction in it. You know, so much so that some like JD Vance, who's who's won the Ohio primary and will probably be the next Republican senator from Ohio, yeah, has more in common, I think, with your uh your you know Occupy Wall Street protester from a decade ago. Than he does with the CEO of Bear Stearns, you know, right? Yeah, uh, and that's really remarkable. Uh, while at the same time, the Democrats, I think, have just completely lost touch with reality, yeah, in a in a, in a very visceral well, way. Yeah,
1: I mean, literally. Yeah, especially when it comes to yeah, exactly, Pride and month,
0: they but... and they yeah, they get so uh, so preoccupied with these fictitious social issues, um, like the transgender, the, tr- the transgender issue that. No one can really take them seriously anymore, except if you are fully imbibing their Kool Aid, right? Which is getting harder and harder. Most people
1: have like one of the issues that they really feel passionately about, and that allows them to overlook everything else. And that was kind of where I found myself was I was like so obsessed with this racial stuff that once I took a step back and I was like, I don't agree with you guys on anything, you know. But that was what Obama did so well in 2012 was they started this coalition. Right. And so to see this coalition of Im- immigrants, uh, black, you know, black people who are victims of racism, systemic racism in America, the LGBT community, you know, the pro choicers. And then. Um, so is that where the
0: sort of intersectionality started, you think? 2012? Yeah, I do. Okay. I think
1: that was when he really shifted his uh, dialogue. And if you like go back and kind of look at his like campaign strategies, it it changed because his policies and stuff like lost a lot of the um the people who originally supported him because they realized like once he got into office like you're not this like moderate that you claim to be the same right. thing with, with Biden's doing right now, right? It's like this kind of return to normalcy, kind of like, um, you're gonna be moderate and like unify. And then over time he Psych. just got yeah. so divisive. Yeah. yeah. And he actually like kicked it off and then BLM came
0: and yeah and really, you know, gave it steroids. <laughs> so so <laughs> let's know. come back to the let's come back to the racial issue for a minute. Or for several minutes. Uh, so you, in high, growing up, you know, mid- elementary school with bullies, middle school at the bus stop, high school with a girlfriend. Like you, you have all these very vivid experiences with personal racism. Yeah. You are convinced by those experiences that the world is against you, mm-hmm. and that you're s- systematically disadvantaged. Right. You get to college. And realize, action, so pretty, I imagine, I hope at, at the Mount, at Mount St. Mary's, you have less experiences of personal racism. Is that accurate? Definitely. Yeah. I don't know that I had any. Okay. Uh, and I you, can't remember. And you get to that point and then you start being convinced that you actually are advantaged by what you termed systemic racism, like affirmative action. Correct. And then that starts to lead you to question your prior convictions about yeah. what disadvantaged you previously. Absolutely. And so now we're in 20 you graduate we're in 2015 um black lives matter really started as a movement i think in 2014 after the shooting in yeah it Ferguson, was 13 Missouri.
1: was uh trayvon martin i believe and then uh, mike brown was in, in 2014 Ferguson. which what yeah like they started in 13 but 14 was okay they, like, okay so
0: off. i think they came on my radar in 14 yeah after after Ferguson. yeah um kind of transitioned from that startup to uh Right. Yeah. Yeah, Exactly. They they, they start to scale at that point. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Exactly. So, you're we're in 2015 now. Black Lives Matter is becoming a national movement, Um, and it seems like every one to two years there is a uh, there is a police killing of an unarmed black man that that sort of brings BLM and this conversation to the forefront. Most recently, George Floyd, 2020. Yeah. But talk to me about your. I don't know. You're going get because I know you've been very active, uh, in sort of critiquing Black Lives Matter. You've traveled and given some talks doing this thing. I've not talked to you about Black Black Lives Matter actually yet, so I'm yeah, excited. No, to, we have excited to have this conversation with you. But talk to me about what they get right as an organization, if anything, and what they get wrong as an organization. Uh, well, their
1: financial model is really strong that's, for a non-profit, I would say. <laughs> you know, if we could duplicate that. Their, their and, compensation
0: structure for their executives
1: is yeah. really, really solid. <laughs> Credo or Excellence, <laughs> so we would be full-time and yeah. have a studio set up better than Joe Rogan's. Um, But yeah, it's a great question, man. So I think what do they get right is harder to answer than what they get wrong. So let's start with that. And then if I come up with anything positive, I'll try to share that along the way. But I was a really big um, supporter back in the day. I think the you know, I talked about in this speech that I gave at, um, Mary university, I talked about my kind of journey with it. And it was really fun to kind of go back and like do research and actually see the dates on this stuff. Right. So in college, I was still like very pro racial justice. Um, well, I was still pro racial justice. Yeah.
0: I was going to say, we yeah. should. Yeah. but
1: I was very, I was very social justice warrior in my approach right. to racial justice, let's say. And, uh, Trayvon Martin came out and I was like, the Trayvon Martin case is really interesting because at first it's like, this is wrong. But I, I, as I put out in that speech, I'm like, uh, one thing that's really crazy is George Zimmerman was not like, if you looked at his photo, I'm like, that doesn't look like a white guy. You know, like if it, if it had been someone that looked like you, it's like, okay, this is a white guy, yeah. you know,
0: and a black guy. Like, I'm like, if you look at him, like you have to kind of like insinuate or be told that he's white. But th- this is the first time in my life that I heard the term white Hispanic.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, what is a white Hispanic? Yeah. And then you start getting on like every form, right? Right. Um, but so that was really crazy to me. But the other thing that was crazy about George Zimmerman, if you go back and you listen to or read the transcript with the police operator that George Zimmerman calls when he's worried about Trayvon walking around his yeah. neighborhood while he's doing this neighborhood watch stuff, um, he actually doesn't reveal his race until he's asked to. You know? And I think like, well, I, so that kind of that and there's nobody had witnessed, nobody saw what happened. And so we really have no idea what happened. Yeah. And so that was, that was still kind of, I was like very pro, like, you know, justice for Trayvon, but I was like, we still kind of don't know. And I feel like people are just like too confident mm-hmm. in this like absence of, and I was a criminal justice major. So I like understood the legal system and like, you know, innocent until guilty and all this. Um, so that happened. Mike Brown was where it really hit me because Mike Brown happened.
0: This is Ferguson, 2014. Yeah,
1: Ferguson, 2014. So Mike Brown, uh, Officer Darren Wilson, Dude, if you go back and you can read the FBI's report on what on their facts that they found, right? Just read the quick facts. It's like two pages. This is a, uh, the head of the Department of Justice was black. Um, it was the DOJ and you know FBI under Barack Obama at the time. Um, and the attorney general was black. They come out and they go, it was Eric Holder at the time, yep. I believe. They come out and they give this report and they're just like, That you can't press charges on this guy. Right.
0: You know? Justified, yeah. Yeah.
1: Like six months after all of the riots and all these things, like they give this detailed report. And when you go through and you read it and you realize, like, Mike Brown got shot in the hand because he had his, and he had residue all over Darren Wilson's gun and on the inside of his car because he'd reached in for his weapon in the car. He, like, he actually had bruising on his jaw, Darren Wilson did from being punched in the face by this massive dude. And then, yeah, the witnesses that say that he had hands up, don't shoot, ended up, like, recanting their testimonies, all these other things that happened. Yeah, Larry Elder goes in on this when, when he talks about it. But it's just really crazy to me. And I'm like, I'm like, wait a minute. Like, all these protests, all these things that were happening, like, we just got told by all these black leaders that this was actually a lie. You know what I mean? That all of this was false. And so that kind of really started to show me, like, wow, this is really ugly. And then in 2020, when... um I knew all of this, right, for, like, the next six years. And in 2020, when George Floyd stuff's going down, I look at, like, finally looking for like, the Black Lives Matter website and all this stuff. And they still have it on there that Mike Brown was murdered by a white police officer.
0: Do they really? Yeah.
1: And then you read, like, news articles from, like, major news outlets that come around every August, you know, when, like, the anniversary of that comes around. And they still talk about a, a uh, white police officer shot an unarmed black man, Mike Brown in august you know what i mean of 20 which is
0: technically true but right but it conceals it's a lot of the facts yeah, yeah. you
1: know what i mean um it's misleading and so i just kind of started to realize like wow this like these people are just full of shit and yeah 2020 then you have george floyd and it was basically a repeat of mike brown to a certain extent mm-hmm. in my opinion um and but yeah the george floyd experience is one yeah we could get into because it was a whole Sounds good. Similar to yours, I think, like where I was first very sympathetic and then was like, wait a minute. Yeah.
0: Do I know it you have again. I know you have a meeting, so maybe this is a good time to wrap up part one yeah. of our of our two part podcast. Uh so to my listeners, thanks for listening to this episode of Creedle. Uh, I know we ended on a cliffhanger there, not even getting into Nate's thoughts on George Floyd, but we will in part two. So we'll continue this conversation. Uh Nate, I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's been great, man. To my listeners, uh, stay tuned for part two. What we're gonna do is put part two on Nate's podcast. So go ahead and find Seeking Excellence in your podcast feed and you can listen to it there. Uh, if you have any feedback for Nate, just send me a note, Zach at podcast.com or feedback for me. Would love to entertain your questions uh, and uh, engage in a dialogue if you would like to do that. So look for Seeking Excellence wherever you get your podcasts. Nate, thanks so much for joining me. Absolutely, man. Uh, I'll talk to you soon for part two. Sounds good.